Please open in your Bibles to Zephaniah. If you're our guest this morning, there are 12 minor prophets in your Old Testament. And they're called minor prophets because their books are so small compared to the major prophets. I believe there are three major prophets. I hope I get this right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, I think, are the major prophets. But I'm, I'm thinking I'm probably wrong, and there may be more. But we're studying the minor prophets on Sunday morning. We've finished half of them. And uh, the one that's up this morning is the prophet Zephaniah. So if you want to look him up in your Old Testament, that's who we're going to be studying this morning. And according to Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 1, the, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, Josiah began to reign in, in Judah some 80 years after Assyria had come down and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. God didn't exile the northern kingdom of Israel. He destroyed her. Uh, he destroyed the people, and, um, and they were vanquished. It's been 80 years since that time, but during those 80 years, the southern kingdom of Judah had not learned the lesson of the north. They sank deeper and deeper into their own sin and depravity and their rebellion against God. Now, in the 18th year that Josiah was king, he started when he was just a little fellow. I, I can't remember his age, but he was very, very young, like five, I think, or something like that. He was 12. I'm sorry. My wife says he was 12. So Josiah began to reign when he was 12. In his 18th year, Hilkiah, who was the priest, found a copy of the Old Testament Torah in the temple. I mean, that's how, that's how much worship of Jehovah had fallen in disregard in Israel. They didn't even have a scroll present, but he found one, evidently tucked away somewhere in the temple, and it had been ignored for decades. So he found this copy of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and he read it to Josiah the king, and Josiah was broken over what he heard. The Bible says in 2 Kings 22 that uh, he wept and he rent his clothes as a sign of, of just brokenness and humility before God. And over the next 13 years, Josiah would lead this amazing reformation in Judah, uh, based on what he read in the scroll of the Old Testament law. Now, he uh, renewed the covenant between God and God's people in 2 Kings 23. If you're taking notes, you might want to just jot this. 2 Kings 23 is where we find the story of Josiah. But he, re he re renewed the covenant between God and his people, something that they had abandoned. abandoned. He took all the vessels of Baal and Asherah, the false gods of, of the land. He removed them from the temple, and he burned them in the fields of Kindred in, in verse 4. In verse 5, he disposed the idolatrous priest. Evidently, there were no priests of God in the temple. There were the priests of Baal in the temple. He broke down the houses of male cult prostitutes. In verse 7, he removed the horses that the former kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun god. Verse 11, and he reinstituted the Passover, which had been ignored for decades since the time of the judges. They had not observed the Passover. Now, these were the days in which Zephaniah wrote, according to verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. So what we read in this book this morning is really going to be a part of this reformation that, that Hosea was pursuing. Now, because of the time markers in the book of Zephaniah, one of the things that we learned is that Zephaniah wrote his book before the reforms 
that Josiah instituted. So actually, Zephaniah comes first, and, and I can't help but believe that maybe the book of Zephaniah plays a part in this repentance that, Zeph- that, that Josiah would experience when they find the temple, you know, the temple law, when they find the book of law in the, in the temple. I can't help but think that, that Zephaniah's book probably has something to do with the repentance in Josiah's heart and the Reformation that follows. But, but one of the things I, that we need to note is that Josiah's repentance and the changes that he brings about are just short-lived. They don't really affect the hearts of many of those in Israel. It doesn't last. And so when Josiah dies an unexpected death in battle, the next king that rises will be evil. He will pursue evil. And the Babylonians are going to come. And they are going to destroy Judah. And they are going to destroy Jerusalem. And they are going to take most of the men and women of Judah captive back to Babylon, where they'll remain in captivity for for 70 years. Now, we know more about Zephaniah than we probably do any of the other minor prophets as far as his, as far as his um, lineage. Uh, he was, or in, as far as other things about him, he was a contemporary of Habakkuk. We're going to study Habakkuk, or if you say Habakkuk, you know, there's two ways of pronouncing that. I've always heard Habakkuk, but uh, if you, uh, if we're going to study Habakkuk next week, he was a contemporary of Habakkuk. He was a t- contemporary of Jeremiah, one of the major prophets. Jeremiah wrote an awful lot leading up into the exile that would take place under Babylon. And so they were contemporaries. Chances are they they may have known each other. Uh, We also know something about Zephaniah's ancestry, and this is important. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 1, we read that he was the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a godly king in Judah. So Zephaniah is the great, great, great grandson of of Hezekiah. And remember, so maybe the the godly line continued uh, through Hezekiah to, to Zephaniah. But here's the point. Zephaniah has royal blood in his veins. He is actually a cousin to King Josiah which may, may have something to do, maybe Zephaniah, as his cousin, had his ear. So maybe Zephaniah is adding to what happens in Josiah's heart by, by preaching to him at, at some level as cousins. So what is the message of Zephaniah? What is it that Zephaniah talks about in the three chapters that comprise his book? Well, unfortunately, it's the same message of all the the prophets, it seems like. And it's this, time's up, this is Jimmy's paraphrase, time's up, you've exhausted the patience of a very patient God, and now judgment is coming. That seems to be the message of every minor and major prophet. Listen, you know, you have exhausted God's, God's uh, mercy, and God's, God's discipline or God's judgment is upon you. In chapter 1, verse 7, Zephaniah tells Judah, that is Israel, he says, the day of the Lord is at hand. Verse 7 says, be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. Now, the sacrifice of this day of the Lord is going to be Judah. See, in the, in the days of the Lord, in so many of those, in so many of those days of the Lord, the, the sacrifice or the judgment was coming against the enemies of Israel. But in this case, Judah is the sacrifice that God mentions. And those invited to the feast, they are the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. You'll find those words used interchangeably in your, pro, in your prophetical writings. And what that is, is the Babylonians, the Chaldeans were the first in the land. And so the Babylonians conquered them. So they were known as the Chaldeans. 
Chaldeans for the longest time. So those two terms are going to be used interchangeably. Chaldeans and Babylonians, it refers to the same group of people. Now here's an interesting tidbit that you may not have realized, and that is that Zephaniah never mentions Babylon by name. He never calls them the Chaldeans. He never calls them the Babylonians. Now, other prophets will. Jeremiah did. Habakkuk did. So we know who who Zephaniah is talking about, but he never names them. And the reason why he doesn't name them, most, most students of the Bible believe he doesn't name them because Zephaniah's point is this. The day of the Lord is coming against you, and this is God's day of judgment against you. This is not what the Babylonians are doing. This is what God is doing. In chapter 1, verse 14, Zephaniah says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. In verse 18 of chapter 1, in chapter 2, verse 2, in chapter 2, verse 3, Zephaniah calls the day of the Lord God's day of wrath, God's day of anger. So what exactly is the day of the Lord? We've talked about this before, but let me go back and just kind of reiterate it for us. The day of the Lord is a term for God's judgment, the day of God's judgment. And there have been, one thing you need to realize, there are many days of the Lord in the Bible. There were the days of the Lord against the enemies of Israel, but guess what? There were a lot of days of the Lord against Israel itself, against God's God's nation itself. God had days of the Lord against them. So when Amos, remember Amos, a few weeks ago we studied Amos, and Amos says, you look for the day of the Lord, but listen, the day of the Lord is not going to be a happy day for you because the day of the Lord is coming against you. When Joel gave his prophecy, I believe in chapter 2, he's talking about the day of the Lord that's coming against Israel. Now there is in the Bible the day of the Lord talking about his judgment against, uh, against the other nations. For instance, Obadiah calls the day of the Lord as pertaining to nations that have destroyed Israel that God will destroy. And he names them Assyria, Edom, Egypt, and Babylon. In the New Testament, there is also a reference to the day of the Lord. And in the New Testament, the day of the Lord often refers to the final day of the Lord, the culminating day of the Lord that, it, that comes in conjunction with the return of Christ. And so in Peter, he talks about it. Let me read it for us. This is 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This is the day of the final day of the Lord. Will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for the hastening looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat but according to his promise we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells in zephaniah the day of the lord's not looking to that day at least not really The day of the Lord that Zephaniah talks about in chapters 1 and 2, and I believe in part in chapter 3, the day of the Lord that he's talking about, he's talking about the judgment that's coming against Judah and against Jerusalem, and it's the judgment that's coming to them for their sin and rebellion, and it's coming to them via Babylon. It's coming to them via the Chaldeans, right? Their impending exile, their destruction, and their impending exile into lands far and wide, but specifically to the land of the Chaldeans. That is coming, and that is the day of the Lord that Zephaniah is talking about. So if you read Zephaniah, chapter 1, chapter 2 really is telling them the day of the Lord is coming against you, and it's about your destruction because of your wickedness. In chapter 1, God says that he will punish the Jewish leaders, and no one will be able to hide. If you have your Bible, look at verse 15. 
That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble with ruin, a day of darkness, of gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. It gets even worse. A day of trumpet and battle cries against the fortified cities, against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on, the pe- on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they, will, they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. Now, if you're following, that's a very gruesome picture that God paints of what's coming. You know, God, they are going to be slaughtered by the Babylonians. He's, and he says there, you can't buy your way out of this one, by the way. And what he's referencing is the kings would often take the gold out of the temple and the silver things out of the temple, and they would try to buy off invading armies from coming in. He says, you're not going to be able to buy off Babylon when the time comes. In chapter 2, it's, uh, we also find something that we find among most of the prophets prophets, and that is that God's mercy is revealed, uh, and his mercy is revealed in what Zephaniah says at the beginning of chapter 2, and he says, gather yourselves together, yes, gather, O nation, without shame, before the decree takes place. What decree? The day of the Lord. Before the day of the Lord comes and takes effect, the day passes like the shaft, burning the, uh, <clears throat> before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes on you, and this is what he says to them, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth. Who have carried out his ordinances, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And so just like in all the other prophets, Zephaniah makes an appeal. All of you, you remnant of men and women who love God. He says, seek after God. Humble yourself before God. Cry out to God before the day comes. So that when it comes, maybe, perhaps, God will hide you. When his, when his fire is burning across you like shaft, consuming everything in its path. Now, I don't know what he means by that. Maybe he means that the day of the Lord can be stopped by their humility and their turning back to God. I mean, God's been that way with even the Assyrians, right? When they turned away from their evil and turned towards God, God relented and did not destroy them. Maybe he won't destroy them, but, but maybe Zephaniah is saying, look at you remnant of men and women who love God. He said, man, cry out to God so that maybe God will spare you when the Babylonians sweep across the land. Maybe that's what he means. But it's God's mercy. We see it in all the prophets. Now, the second part of chapter 2 is God making himself clear. He will judge his people, but he's also going to judge all the nations that he's going to use in that judgment, all right? Yes, he's allowing them to punish Israel. He's allowing them the freedom to destroy his nation. He says, but you're not going to go unpunished for doing that. Now, let's go back for just a moment. Remember when God establishes Abraham's descendant as a nation, It's on Mount Sinai. God God constitutes them into a nation, and he says this. I'm going to do two things for you. You folks in my class, you should know this. He's going to do two things for you, for them. He's going to protect them, and he's going to provide for them. That's what he promises, and he says, here's what I desire of you, that you follow me, that you love me, that that you follow my covenant, you keep my commands. And so his desire is for them to love him and trust him. That's all he asks of them. But Israel, the nation, is never, ever able to do that. I appreciate your prayer this morning, uh, Micah, because, I mean, we could cast stones at, at Adam and Eve for failing, but you were right. Chances are all of us would have failed just the same. And one of the, one of the points of the Old Testament, one of the points in God's nation that he keeps making with his people is, 
all the commands I give you, all the desires, you cannot keep them. You cannot keep them. There's something fundamentally wrong with your heart. You need a new heart. You need me to do something different for you, and I want you to see that. So in any way, in this case, God has removed his protection from Israel. Assyria has wiped them off the, off the face of the earth. Now he's going to remove his protection from Babylon, and Babylon isn't going to obliterate them, but he he is going to destroy them, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. He's going to exile the people, the remnant of the people, back to uh, Babylon, and and they're going to get to do that because God has removed his protection off of his nation. That's why they get to do it. But here God says to them, but know this, nations, I will judge you too. There is a day of the Lord coming for you as well. So in in, in Assyria, part of chapter 2, the major part of chapter 2, is God saying to the Assyrians, your judgment is just around the corner for what you did to my northern kingdom, for for how you you came and destroyed them. God used them. That was God's punishment, discipline of the northern kingdom, but but God is still going to punish the Assyrians for what they did. That brings us into chapter 3, which is a return in Zephaniah's message to his main point, which is that God is about to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. Again, he doesn't name them, but by the Babylonians. And, and so the chapter 3 begins like this. It, the focus is Jerusalem. Verse 1, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. And in verse 6, God makes the statement, You know, I, I destroyed all these other nations. They saw my power. I thought for sure Jerusalem would repent, but they did not. And so in verse 7, he says, but they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. So in fact, all that God let them see when he destroyed the northern kingdom using Assyria, none of it made any impact on Judah. And they just kept on down their path of rebellion. And God says, I just don't get it. I really thought you'd see what I was doing, but they would not. And that brings us to the last part of chapter 3, which is God's promise for the future. And here's where I want to focus, and here's where I believe God has something for us as I'll share, you can, you, can, you can judge whether I'm, I'm parsing what God says correctly or not, but, but I believe this last part of chapter 3 is for them, but I think it also is for us, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But when we get to chapter 3, the end of it, we, we find this promise from God, and it's a promise for some good stuff for, for Judah, all right? Now, a few weeks ago, I told you that there is a difficulty in the Old Testament when we see these promises. And, and so some of the, the, the question is, these promises that God makes through the prophets, are these promises directed towards the nation of Israel and in the context in which they are? Or are these promises far, far looking in the future to when God brings heaven back to earth and he restores his kingdom so that all the earth is restored? And I told you, sometimes it's kind of hard to know. Who is, who is God addressing in this promise? Is it national Israel, or is it the nation, or is it God's people at the end of time when he restores his kingdom, when, when heaven and earth are joined together again? So where is the promise looking? Sometimes it's hard to know. And I have to tell you that the, prophet, the promise here in the end of Zephaniah, it took me a while, but I really think most of this promise is directed towards the nation of Israel. I really believe that he is, he's talking to them and giving them hope for the future some 70 years down the road. However, having said that, as we'll see in just a moment when we go through this promise, 
Some of the things that God says, uh, they, they do not last. They do not last. In other words, the promises, they're, they're true, I believe, for the moment of restoration and for a season after that, but they don't remain. And so there is a sense in which I think this promise can be directed towards us. Because when God does what the little video says and he joins heaven and earth back again, when they become one again, his promises will be forever. So with that in mind, let's look at the promise. There's four, four or five parts to it. There's four or far, five parts to the, uh, to the promise. Verse 8 says, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Now, the part that I really want you to grab hold of in verse 8 is the part where he says, wait for me. It's coming. I'm going to do this, okay? I've got something good promised for you. Wait for me. Believe me. Trust me in what is, is coming. And like I said, I think most of these promises that we're going to look at, they can have application for Israel 70 years from this point. In 537 uh, B.C., when, when Israel returns from Babylon to the promised land, I think these promises are something they can look forward to in that context. But again, having said that, there's just something about these promises that seems to be pointing to the very end when God establishes you know, the kingdom of Israel, the true Israel of God, those men and women who by faith have put their hope in Messiah and God restores heaven and earth to, to one new heaven and earth. When that, I think some of these promises look for us. So, so let's look at them and I'll try to apply them in both contexts. All right. Verse 8 itself even seems to speak long term because in verse 8 at the very end he says, I'm going to gather all the nations and there's a sense in which I think that means all the nations around Israel so they would see, God would pour out his indignation on them and they would see what God's going to do with his nation as he restores them, right? But there's something about verse 8 that seems to be long term, right? Where he says at the very end of that, and I'm going to pour out my indignation, my burning anger for all the earth will be devoured by fire, by the fire of my zeal. Now again, that could be metaphorical. God could be just trying to talk about his zeal for his nation. But, you know, there's just something that seems to remind me of Peter, right? The passage I already read you, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So there's something about verse 8 that seems to have... I believe both a kind of an immediate, within the next hundred years, fulfillment for the nation, but there also seems to be something that's telling us, hey, there's stuff in here for all of us that are God's people at the end when God brings heaven and earth together. So what is the promise? There's several parts to it. Wait on it. Here's the first one. He says, I'm going to bring holiness back. Holiness will be restored to my people. So look at verse 9. For then I will give to the to the people's purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord, to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. In that day you will feel no shame, because all of your deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove them from your midst. I will remove from your midst you proud, your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain." 
But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Now here's what God is promising, I believe, the nation of Israel. He said, there's going to come a time when I'm going to restore holiness to my people and faithfulness to my people. Remember, Israel right now is being exiled into the land because of their unholiness. They're being exiled because of their unfaithfulness. And God says there's coming a time when I'm going to restore both holiness, purified lips, and I'm going to restore faithfulness to my people. They're going to call out my name. They're going to stand shoulder together, shoulder to shoulder, serving me. There will be unity of service, not just for a few. There'll be coming a day when he says he's going to remove their shame and their pride. And instead, he's going, to, he's going to bring back worshipers who will return from their dispersion, whether it's Ethiopia. Those of you who studied uh, the uh, Acts chapter 8 and the Ethiopian eunuch this morning, whether it's from Ethiopia or from primarily Babylon, he's going to bring those he uh, dispersed, he's going to bring them back. Verse 13, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. The remnant will come back to Israel. They'll return from Babylon, and he seems to be saying that the remnant that returns are going to be godly men and women, a reformulated nation that, he, that is equated to the remnant that we always talk about. Now, remember, within the nation of Israel, there, there's two Israels, guys. There's the nation of Israel, and then within Israel, there's the true Israel. And the true Israel is the Israel that is by faith. It's the true, it's the Israel that trusts in God. It's the Israel that loves God. It's the Israel that follows God. Not all of national Israel is the true Israel. Okay, now does God desire them to be the same? Absolutely. God desires for the true Israel to be his nation. And it seems to be saying, God seems to be saying, when I restore holiness, the true Israel and the national Israel, they're going to be like one and the same. Like all my people will love me. All my people will follow me. All my people will have purity purified lips, and they will serve me together. And so he seems to be equating the remnant with, with everyone. Now, one thing I think we need to note here that, that bears this out, in a way, is that when Israel returns from Babylon, do you know that they never again worship the Baals? I mean, they were always struggling with the Baals, always struggling with the Asherah, always struggling with the false gods of the land. After they returned, they never again went back to those false gods Something changed in the, in, the, in the dispersion. Something changed in that exile when they returned. They were no longer polytheistic. They, they loved and served only Jehovah after that. Now, the promise is for them personally, and the promise is for their immediate prodigy. But, but I think, can I say this? I think this promise looks forward to us as well. It looks forward to the day when holiness is restored on all of God's people forever and ever. We will always have purified lips. We will always have no shame. We will always serve shoulder to shoulder. This is a promise for us as well. Um, in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, our sin has been dealt with forever. I mean, we are forgiven. And not only are we forgiven, but God now is in the process of transforming 
transforming us. He's changing our mind. He's changing our, our person. He's changing our inner man. And he's conforming us into the image of Christ. But one of the neat things is that the Old Testament and the New Testament promises a day when there will be absolute holiness among God's people. Now, unfortunately, the people of Israel came back from the exile, and they had a holy heart for God. But you know what? It didn't last. It didn't remain. For us, God's people, God's going to come. There's coming a day when God's going to fix the part that we cannot. We cannot even, even though we have been redeemed and the Holy Spirit lives within us and He's transforming us, He's going to fix all of that. So in the Old Testament, Isaiah 35 says this, verses 8 and 9 A highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness, and it will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it, wicked fools will not go about on it, but only the redeemed will walk there. Only the redeemed are going to walk on the way of holiness. In Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, God paints a picture of a day when there will be no more sin, no more rebellion, no more selfishness. Chapter 21 of chapter 27 says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, talking about God's new heavens and new earth, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Israel returned to its rebellion and its sin, the nation did. And uh, they would eventually reject Messiah Jesus. Uh, you and I, even in our redeemed state, we fall. Even, even though God has redeemed us and changed our nature and put his spirit within us, even now we still sin. But there's coming a day, and this is the promise, I think, that Zephaniah says to his people, to God's people. He says, look, there's coming a day when I am going to seal, I'm going to change your nature. I'm going to make you so you no longer sin. And I don't know about you guys, but I've said this many, many times over the years. I am so looking forward to being sealed in righteousness, to, not, to having a nature that doesn't rebel against God, to having, you know, God gave us a nature with a will to, to independently act from him. And that's led to our sin. And, and again, I'm going to go back to Micah's prayer and, and to the truth that all throughout the history of Israel, they, God would give them laws after laws after laws, but they never could keep them because the problem was our nature. The neat thing about God's promise is I'm going to bring everybody back who is a, who's my child through faith, and I'm going to give to them absolute holiness never to sin again. Let me move on, and I won't be so long on each point. The second one is praise will be incited, verse 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you will fear disaster no more. So here's the, here's the second promise. You guys are going to be filled with praise. When you come back, the Lord's going to be in your midst, and, and he is going, you're going to be so filled with praise. Your, your lips are going to praise the Lord because he will have done away with the judgments against you. He will have cleared out your enemies. And that is exactly what we see God did when they returned. Nehemiah came back, and under Nehemiah's leadership, they, they, they didn't fear their enemies. They built the walls. And the neat thing was that the temple was restored. After 70 years of the presence of God being missing, because remember, the presence of God was tied to the temple. After 70 years of the presence of God being destroyed or not being there because the temple wasn't there, God is in their midst again because the temple is restored and God's glory returns to the temple and his presence is in the temple. 
And so it says, God, your presence is going to be with you. And uh, can you just imagine, think with me for just a moment. Imagine you are national Israel, and you were part of the exiled people, and you were living in Babylon, and all of a sudden Persia overtakes Babylon, and they win. And Cyrus, who's the new king, steps up, and there's a decree read, read, read in your neighborhood that says, guys, I want you to go home. I'm going to pay for you guys to go home. Go home and rebuild your country. Go home and rebuild your temple. Can you imagine the excitement that they experienced that day? And and so God says, there's going to be such praise when you come home and you are there. You know, and I, I say, you know, I think that's a promise for them. But you know what? This promise can be for us too at that final heaven and earth because our hearts will be filled with praise. Um, in Revelation chapter 8, it seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom, a new kingdom, and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels and all the, the, those around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You know, can I say this about the new heavens and the new earth? I really want you to get this. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's relationships. I mean, just like we have friendships now and relationships, that'll be so in the new heaven and the new earth. In the new heaven and new earth, there's going to be work and there's going to be achievement. I think there's going to be dreams and there's going to be society and there's going to be culture and it's going to be like it is now, just without sin. Without, it's going to be glorified, right? It's going to be glorified, but it is not going to be you sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. I don't know where that came from, why our culture says we think that's what heaven is. That's not what heaven is. Heaven and earth is going to be an awful lot like this. But do not be filled. I mean, fooled. Our hearts will be filled with praise in the new heaven and the new earth. I mean, your heart will sing for praise all the time. You will remember your Savior. Your heart will be incited with praise always. Number three, security will be established. Verse 16, and that day it will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion, do not be afraid. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He says, hey, when you come back, God's promising them security. And God sent Nehemiah, who brought security to them. And so they had security when they returned from their exile. That was God's promise of provision and protection. Now, somewhere along the way, you know, they, they rebelled against God and God didn't protect them. Seventy, they say, are hard to imagine just how bad that really was. But Rome came in and killed the Jews, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. God removed his protection. But he promised them, when you come back, I am going to protect you. I am going to provide for you. But there is a promise for you and me, I think, in the new heaven and the new earth, when we are with the Lord, the promise is one of absolute protection for us. Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there, there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among us, and he will dwell among us. And they shall be his people, and God will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning, and no crying or pain. The first things have passed away. For he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. 
So you know what, folks? There's going to be a time in the future where we shall dwell securely with the Lord. I mean, no more fear. Fear grips our lives all the time. I'm not talking just about fear of dying or fear of being killed. I'm talking about just all kinds of fears. Fears of losing my job, fears of not being provided for, fears of my kids not turning out right, or fears of, uh, you know, my friends disowning me. I don't know what we might be afraid of. We're afraid of, afraid of so many things. And Jesus is promising us absolute security because Jesus will be with us always. Number four, delight will be evident. I love this. He will take, this is the second part of verse 17. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Not only were the Jews going to be incited with praise when they came back, but God himself is going to be filled with joy, and he is going to rejoice over them, and he, his delight in them would be great, and he says, I'm going to sing over them. God is so forgiving. They come home from Babylon, and God has, I listen, he's, he's dealt with their sin, he punished their sin. He disciplined them. When, he come, when they come home, he rejoices over them and he sings over them. I don't know how many of you parents have done this. Maybe you're not quite like me. But when my children were little, at times, I would go in there when they were asleep. Now listen, when the smoke detectors all go off in my house, my kids never woke up. So I could go in there and I could stroke their hair, sit on the edge of their bed, and I could pray for them and I could sing for them, sing over them. And I would sing over them. I would sing over my children. And, and, and I don't say I did that often. I'm saying I did it all the time. But I sang over my kids. And, and I had that picture when God says he's going to sing over them. He's going to sing over us, everyone. He's going to be so delighted in us, his people, on the day when God establishes everything because everything will be made new and he will delight in us. And he will sing over us. God's, I don't know if you can picture God like this because we tend to think of God as the stoic, the stoic God with no emotions. I tell you, we have emotions because God, I believe we have emotions because God has emotions. And, 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 and God is going to delight over us as people through the Lord Jesus. He's going to sing over you. He's going to sing over me. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the story, and it's so funny because that's in my notes, Micah, okay? And I didn't tell Micah to read Luke 15. Actually, though, I was going to focus on the first part of chapter 15. There's three parables. The last one's the one about the son that Micah read, but the first one is one about a, a sheep that was lost. The second one's about a coin. And in the first two parables, when Jesus finishes telling the story, let me talk about the sheep one. So the guy, the shepherd loses his sheep. He leaves 99 behind and goes looking for the one. When he finds the one, he is so excited. He texts all his buddies and says, I found my sheep. And then he says, would you guys come over? I want to have a party because I found my sheep. It's so important to him. And he has a party because he found his sheep. And then, and then Jesus says this in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Can I tell you at the end of time when all of us who are redeemed are joined together in the new heaven and a new earth under our Father, under the rule of Jesus our King. I tell you, God is going to rejoice over us and he's going to sing over us with delight. And the final thing, the final thing is the rest, that restoration will be certain. So he says, Zephaniah says, God says through Zephaniah, to I believe the Jews that are about to be exiled, I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast 
They came from you, O Zion. The approach, the reproach of the exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So here's what the Lord promises. He says to them, listen, there's coming a time in the future when I am going to restore you. Wait for it. It's coming. I'm going to restore you guys, okay? And it's for certain. And those of you who grieve right now because you don't have special worship times, I'm going to restore you. Those of you who feel the shame and burden of your exile because you have a heart for God and you know this is God's punishment, he says, I'm going to remove that, that shame and burden that you have. He says, I'm going to deal with your oppressors, Babylon, Assyria, all of them. I'm going to deal with them and I am going to restore your fortunes and, and the renown of Israel will be known to everyone. God will restore his people, his nation. Now, God did that for Israel after the exile. He brought them back. He gave them renown. He sent them Nehemiah, who made them famous in their day. But they would later squander that. As a nation, they would squander that restoration, and their sin and rebellion against God would return. But again, that same promise is reiterated in the New Testament to every one of you that's here today, okay? And here's the promise that God gives us in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writing, writes this, beginning with verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected, subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we, are, we ourselves having fr the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and for the redemption of our body, that is to receive our new glorified body that lives forever. He says, man, we were looking for this. Here's the point. The curse that Adam brought on us by his sin, the curse of death and the curse of, of the, the whole planet was subjected to that. All of creation, Paul says, was subjected to that. But God is going to restore all that was lost in the beginning, all that was lost. In Revelation 21, verse 5, it says, God says, behold, I am making all things new. You ought to memorize that verse. It's one of my favorites. God is making all things new. God's making all things new. In chapter 22, just a few verses later, this is what God says. Then he showed me, John, a river of, of, water, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be on it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. They will no, there will no longer be any night. There will no longer be a need for a light or a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Did you notice what's back in Revelation 21 that hasn't been back in the whole entire Bible? Here's what's back. In Genesis chapter 3, God removes the tree of life. 
and the tree of life is gone. And God removes it lest we eat it and have immortality. And yet in chapter 21 of Genesis, or chapter 22, excuse me, the last chapter of the Bible, God returns the tree of life to his earth. You see, God's making all things new. God's restoring all things. Holiness, wholeness, beauty, love, sinlessness, eternal life. It's all going to be restored. It's all going to be ours again through the Lord Jesus. And I, I wish I had a way of exciting you with this. And I, I, I know it's hot in here. And I've preached a long time. And you've been so faithful to listen so attentively. But, but I really want us to get this this morning. This promise to to Israel is one that, hey, after the exile, I'm going to do these things for you. They would be short-lived because Israel rebellion would, be, would return. Their sinfulness would return. And, and at the end of time, at the end when God brings heaven and earth back together, then all those things that God promised Israel will be ours. Everything. The holiness that he says was theirs will be ours, and it will be ours forever. Okay? The, uh, the joy that they experience and the praise of God and God being filled with delight over them, that'll be true of us and it'll be true forever and we'll never lose it. God will sing over us. Even as their security was established, God is going to establish us in security in his new world. And even as God restored dignity and position to them in that land, God is going to restore everything to us. Everything that God intended from the beginning will belong to his people through Christ. Let's bow our heads. You know, I told somebody the other day that I'd always like to have some sort of invitation at the end of the service to invite you to respond in some way to this. And, and you know, even this morning, I was like, Lord, what's the invitation? What is it? What's the response to this promise that you gave them and fulfilled and a, and a promise that I believe still applies to us? You know, what, what's the response? And I think the response for us this morning would be simply this. Enjoy Rest in what God has promised us. I know we're going to go through a lot of suffering. Jesus said it. We're going to suffer. Some of you are suffering now. Some of you have suffering that lies ahead that you know not. That you know not. And when it comes, it's going to be really, really, really tough. But in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of everything you go through, just keep your, keep your mind and heart set on what God has promised us in Christ. He's going to make us holy. I mean, he's already made us holy in Christ, but he's going to establish us in holiness, never to lose it again. No more struggle with whatever the sin is that you struggle with, the selfishness of your life. You know you're not going to struggle with that anymore because God's going to fix our nature, change our nature. And I look so forward to that. You know, whatever lies ahead for you, always, always remember, always remember that that the praise that, that, that should well up in our hearts for all that God has done and all that God is going to do. And that's our hope, and it's our promise, it's our expectation. So rejoice in the Lord. Rest in security in Him. Rest in our Savior. Listen, I know some of us are going to go through some suffering. You know, I know Christians are out there trying to tell us we never suffer. That's just, that's just hogwash. We suffer like everyone else, and sometimes we suffer more than, than somebody who's who's just a, an, an evil person and has no regard for God, and yet we're suffering more than them. I, I can't answer that, 
But in the midst of that suffering, know that God's not going to leave you. He's going to keep you. And there's coming a day when he's going to remove all suffering. And, and, and Paul said the suffering of this age is, is just, it can't even be compared to the glory of what's coming. So delight and trust in your Savior. Remember how he delights in us. Remember how he delights in us and, and what a day it's going to be when, when heaven is united to earth and, and we're there with our Savior. Rest in that. And then finally, hold on to the truth that God's going to restore all things. The Garden of Eden will be restored and we will be with him. We'll dwell with him face to face. We'll see him. He's going to be our king. He's going to be here with us. We'll touch him. We'll know each other. I mean, hope in these things because this is the promise of God. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters even as I pray for myself. Lord, that the, that the, the promise of Zephaniah, you know, with an, with an extension for us, Lord, that, that we would rest in these promises. We would rejoice in these promises. We would hold tight to you in the midst of these promises. Help us to do that by your spirit. I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.